0: Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the amazing women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. Eighty years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by the Honorable Sue Gordon, a former senior federal executive with over three decades in the IC, 29 of which were at CIA. Most recently, Sue served as the Principal Deputy Director of National Intelligence. She is known for her incredible leadership across the community, especially in advancing intelligence integration, expanding outreach, and partnerships and in driving innovation. Sue, reading your intro gave me chills. I'm so thrilled you're here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks, Megan. I am uh, honored and delighted to be here. I love Awick. It's a great honor for me. Thank
0: you. So I thought we'd get started by you telling us a little bit about your career in the IC, where you started, and how you progressed to one of the most senior roles of the community.
1: It is one of the great mysteries of the universe. Yeah, so let me give you just a bit of an arc. I came right out of uh, my undergraduate uh, education at Duke. So at 21 years old, I showed up at the CIA, bright and shiny. I uh, had actually been hired to do analysis of Soviet biological warfare. I had a degree in zoology and um, I was hired into the Office of Scientific and Weapons Research and that's what I was going to do. But in 1980, much as with several times since then, it was a down budget time, and the agency was downsizing, and my job went away in the time I was getting cleared. So I showed up, and they said, ah, you don't have a job, but you have 30 days to find work. Oh, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> I know, right? And if you had seen me back then, I think I looked about 12 I was the third kid of a naval officer. I wasn't very worldly. And so this was like a big, like, whoa moment. But that's okay. You do what you're supposed to do. And I searched around. And the only job that I found that fit was one doing analysis of Soviet missile launches. And analysis is kind of a big word for what I did. I took NSA reports. Mm-hmm. They were technical, and I turned them into English. So there wasn't actually a lot of analysis going on. And that kind of launched me into a career that went from doing analysis of technical foreign systems, then I got a chance to build... U.S. systems. Then I got a chance to lead analysis. I came back, I went from the director of analysis over to the director of science and technology to build things. And then I came back into the director of analysis. And at 28, I got my first branch and I never wasn't a leader since that point. And I loved leading. I wasn't very good to begin with it, but I fell into it. I always say, if your vision exceeds your abilities that you possess yourself, you have to lead. And that was certainly me. And I trundled along being a branch chief, doing really cool stuff, space. And then I got, my boss came and and told me he wanted me to go into leadership of an IT branch, and then I parlayed that into a little bit of expertise in IT and data analytics. So I moved over to the DS&T and, um, started an office called the Office of Advanced Analytic Tools. That worked out okay. And then they asked me to come up with a way to get to the energy of Silicon Valley. And I came up with the idea for Inkytel. Then I left for eight years Then I then I, then I to finish raising my family. Then I came back. I got to go into the operational part of the Directorate of Science and Technology. And so I got to know about covert action. That I got to do cyber operations where I learned about risk that was entirely different from technical risk. Then out of the blue, Dave Petraeus asked me to lead the Directorate of Support, which was my funnest job ever and the only one I hated leaving. Then I was minding my own business and that, um, John Brennan asked me to figure out cyber for the agency. So I did a study for him that became his reorganization and my departure. I went to NGA where I learned about combat support in an entirely different part of the intelligence community. Because when you're at the CIA, you think that that is the Alpha and Omega. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why would we need anything else? And holy smokes, my world was opened up with that. And then finally being asked to be the principal deputy director. And now my next chapter, which is figuring out how to be who I am to help the nation, but from the private sector. So pretty cool arc. Interestingly, there were like four points where... I would have said either disruptions or unfortunate things happened that I wouldn't have chosen. But each one of those things tended to be the catalyst to what I became. So I was a technical analyst, but I had a boss who didn't think women should do technical work. So I decided that I needed to leave and that taught me about building things. And then I had a boss who wanted me to do IT and I didn't want to do that. And I don't know, he convinced me. And I thought my career was going to be over. And yet, man, we didn't know in 1989 that it was going to be the technology that defined the future. And when I took the study uh, for John Brennan, I didn't have a good feeling about it. And it did end up kind of causing me to be voted off the CIA island. But it turned into the chance to go to NGA. And we'll talk later about uh, the end of my career. But even that end has like impelled me to new things. So it's interesting that things that I thought were awful turned out to be the transportation. And then to the point of transportation, because you asked me about the art. Mm-hmm. Here's how I would tell you, you know, when you look at that, how in the world did that happen? How did you get to all those jobs from your bachelor's degree in zoology? And why were you so busy for 40 years that you couldn't go back?
0: Well, and I think that so many young women who are coming into the IC think that they have to have this very straight path that, okay, I have to graduate from Georgetown with a security studies degree and then go into the IC. But, you know, I think some of the most successful IC um, professionals have been the ones who have had that unconventional career?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, for me, the transportation was one thing is immutable. And I would tell everyone, you just have to be good. There is no magic. And you can't be glib good. Early in my career, I could talk a good game, but I didn't have a skill set. So I'd say, if you want the career of your dreams and you want maximum flexibility, you have to work at your craft at every stage. You can't just fake that through. The second thing is you have to keep your head up. You have to see what's happening around you. Not that you're always looking for the next job, but you are trying to figure out what's happening to the world that will affect the job you're, you're doing. Um, for me, I was willing to say yes when people asked me to do something. And in fact, one of the things we talk about is what is sponsorship for me. I don't think I felt that I had a sponsor, but I certainly had people who moved me and helped me move from one track to another. And so being open to people who say, I, I think you should do this. they portray us. go do support, right? And then the last was, I never tried to protect myself along the way. And what I mean by protecting is, I never tried when I took a job to make sure that it didn't do me harm. I never took a job wondering whether that was the job that was going to get me a promotion because that kind of clouds your vision and limits your ability to just do something. And for me, my... Value turned out to be I was the one that you hired if you wanted to do something. And part of doing something is you can't be holding something back because you're afraid of what it will cost you.
0: I love that. So we talked a little bit about just your career, but you touched upon what's next, right? And so I was really excited to hear that you're in the process of writing a book called The Art of Deciding. So I'm sure throughout your career, you've had to make more than one hard decision. I could put money on it. Could you share with us a few of the hardest decisions you've had to make and how you've kind of got through those tough moments?
1: Yes, I'll choose just a couple. I will say if you're doing it right, you will make tons of decisions every day. And so, you know, programmatic decisions, analytic decisions, but I'll leave most of those aside because those tend to be gathering data and just coming up with the, the best thing for the organization. Early on, my decision to leave the director of analysis when I was 24, because in a way that only a 24-year-old can believe, I didn't think they properly valued me. And so I decided to go to the director of science and technology. And when I told my boss this, he said, well, you know, you, you maybe should leave, he said, but do you really think you've got the skills to succeed over there? You know, you're not an engineer. We like you enough here. This is a much safer career path. So I'm just, you know, so you really ought to think about, do you really want to take that risk? And man, when you're young and someone you respect says that to you, it is really easy to get. <gasps> yeah. but you're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I'm not any good. Maybe I can't rely on myself. Maybe I don't have the skills I thought I did. So that was doesn't seem very consequential now, but I will tell you to decide to go anyway when the people around you are saying you're going to fail is a pretty big decision. I think there were a number that came along in my career, but the biggest one is my decision to leave. I've been pretty successful in my early career. I was SIS at 35. In my late 30s, I was an SIS 4. I had, After 19 years, I would pretty much you know, climbed to the top of the mountain, stuck my flag in there. And I was out at a dinner, um, trying to get some board members to run Inkytail, And I got a call from uh, my younger daughter that my older son had run away from home. Now he came back. But when I came home, I read the letter he wrote and I thought, ooh. For a woman who had spent the first part of her career trying to be both great at work and great at home by cheating time, I was failing. And so I left with two weeks notice, you Now, in one sense, it was a easy decision because it was a decision for family in another one. It was hard because I was like, Oh my gosh, we're going to lose more than half my family's income. What, what if I turn into and, and for every woman who makes the decision to stay at home and raise their family and I'm all for various decisions. But at that moment in my career, I was like, what if I turn into just a housewife and I won't be cool anymore. Um, And man, what is it going to look like? And all those things were really hard because it was so tied up in my ego. My ego was so much around my job. So that was a really big decision um, for me to make. Choosing what to do when I came back was hard. So after eight years, (laughs) my children were happily ensconced through their life and I decided to come back. And the agency gave me a job fair. Isn't that lucky? And they gave me a range of jobs, The first one, I said no to. So this is a big thing. I've asked them for help. They offer something to me and I go, no. (laughs) No thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You can get one no. The second thing they offered me was equally awful. But you can't say no twice because then you're what? A problem. You know, the same thing you don't (laughs) want to be. And so deciding to come back in something other than what I wanted was turns out to be a big decision. And in part, it was how do you stay within the system, right? You can't can't ask for everything. I can't say I want to come back and I want the perfect thing. Um, So that was a pretty big decision. And to me, it was about, well, this is just an instantaneous thing. And just like when I was a GS7, I'm going to come in and I'm going to rebuild my craft and I'm going to prove my worth and it's going to move forward. But it was a big, it was a decent decision. A big decision for me was taking the study that John Brennan asked me to do. I was really happy as the director of support. I was number six in the agency. I had the the largest directorate. And John Brennan called me and he said he wants me to do a study to figure out cyber for the agency. I wouldn't have my job anymore. And I said, well, what do you mean by, it? and he said, I don't know. And there was just something about it that felt like he didn't really understand who I was, didn't really understand what I was going to give him and didn't really understand what it would take to implement it. And still I took it kind of because that's who I've always been. But I really agonized over that decision because I think he was earnest, I think he just didn't understand what I was going to give him and the bind it was going to put him in Mm -hmm. when I did. And when it put him in that bind, then something had to give and what had to give was me. And I, I saw that coming and still I decided to do it. And then the last decision is when I was in the principal deputy director's office, Stephanie O'Sullivan, who's my hero, my icon. I mean, she's just, come on, she's just everything. And she had been a mentor and friend and, Eyesight was her thing. Desktop DTE was her thing. She had gotten all the deputies come together. I come into the job and honest to goodness, within a week, it became apparent we needed to end that program. And it, we had sunk $500 million in it. Four years of human effort. We didn't have another good solution. And it was still the right thing to do. But mostly it meant that I was going to contravene a decision of the person I respected the most. And still you screw up your courage and do it.
0: Did you tell her beforehand no. or did you you did, you did just made the decision?
1: I did. I, you know, that's a great question. I called her once I'd made the decision. I called her before it hit the press. Mm-hmm. But no. I, and it, you know, that's a really great question, Megan, is we could have a whole theory of decision-making conversation. And one of it is you need to own this decision you have because sometimes if you pass it on to somebody else, you have now burdened them and you've kind of corrupted the process. So sometimes you don't want the pressure of the decision, but by involving like a higher level of someone else, you've either involved them in the decision and they either have to give you tacit approval or now you're burdened with their disapproval. So I think that's a really interesting question of when you decide to seek counsel and when you decide that counsel would be destructive. And it's- I think
0: that was kind of my next question I wanted to get to mm-hmm. was including myself, but I'm sure a lot of others, you know, when they're making these difficult decisions, they reach out for counsel with people Mm -hmm. they trust and mentorship with people they Mm -hmm. respect. And when did you stop doing that? When did you stop, you know, asking others and just go with your gut?
1: Oh, so great question. And I don't just go with my gut. I am a huge data collector right? So I will talk to a lot of people to make sure that I see it clearly, that I understand it is clear. And when I'm really relentless is when someone I respect has a different view from me, especially if I can't understand how anyone could have a different view from me, (laughs) right? So if I see something that just seems silly or dumb or wrong, I will dive into that because my experience is that people are generally not silly or casual or anything. And so until I can understand why somebody else holds an entirely different position, I'm going to dive in and do it. But the truth is that every decision is a creative act, right? There is some gap that you have to leap If you're going to make a decision, if you don't have to leap a gap, it's called an equation, right? You just Mm -hmm. plug everything in and the answer is known. And you don't, you don't, that isn't what a decision maker does. Right. Right. Deciding includes going over some uncertainty and because you have to decide anyway. And so how do you decide to leap that? And when you, no more information can help you when the decision must be made, when you think you understand the consequence of being wrong, man, then you just have to decide. And we all want someone else to tell us what to do. <laughs> you know, at 19 years old, my husband asked me to marry him. I'm like, oh, right? <laughs> you know, we all, not because I didn't love him, but because, oh my God, we were, we were 19 and 20, right? In really big decisions, we all wish someone else would tell us what to do but generally, if it's your decision to make and it's a real decision, there is some piece of it that you're just going to have to decide and you're going to have to carry that weight. And it's a little bit of an art to figure that out. But for me, it's about when I know enough and we have to go, I've always been willing to go. Mm -hmm. When it's personal, I can do that because there is no circumstance from which I can't recover. You can take away just who I am, you could take away everything I have, and we would rebuild. And so that fear of a decision that is wrong personally doesn't weigh on me. This is the weird part. Organizationally, you know why I'm generally confident decision maker? Because our women and men generally won't let us fail. Right. And so weirdly they need me to make decisions to chart a course. But the reason why the decisions by and large aren't scary is because of their competence. Hmm.
0: So I have, I have a few questions to, to follow up with that. So I'm not sure where to go. Um, anywhere you, anywhere you so want. So how, how do you balance doing what is right with what works? Uh,
1: well, you always have to do what's right. Uh, and it always has to work. And so what's brilliant about your question is that every decision has to work within a system. So you cannot choose wrong, but you cannot choose something that can't happen. And my simplistic example is if my job were to count cars, the best way to count cars would be to stand in the middle of the highway and count them. How is that going to work for me? right? I still have to count cars. I can't say, you know what? I can't, I'm not going to count cars or I'm going to count them in precisely, but I can't come up with a solution that won't work within the system. And so to me, that's the balance you have to have. You have to be true. It has to be responsive. It has to be integrous. It has to be mission related. All those things are inviolate, but it has to work within the resources that you have It has to work within the capabilities of the people you have. It has to be a step forward, not a treading water. And so it's that balance you have between it. You must do right, but there are always constraints. And the magic is how do you choose a big enough bite to make sure that your decision moves you forward, but still can have life beyond that? You know, if we put this in a larger political context right now, one of the things that worries me the most is our systems have gotten slow and they aren't as modern as they need to be in terms of giving timely responses to a very changed world. Mm -hmm. And we have an administration that is impatient with our institutions. And so what you have is decisions have to be made. And they're being made outside the construct of the system. In other words, someone's just putting their thumb on the scale and saying, I want that outcome. And we don't know whether that outcome is repeatable. And so to me, that's the question you have to do right. Mm -hmm. And it has to be able to work.
0: So to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, making these hard decisions, you know, often when I make hard decisions, sometimes I stay up at night thinking about the consequences of the decisions I've made or, you know, if someone's gonna be upset with the decision. And have your decisions ever kept you up at night? I mean, you know, are there times when you are emotionally affected by a decision that you've made? Oh, heck,
1: I you know, I sleep like a baby, everything's easy for me, and <laughs> I and I never screw up or doubt myself. So I'm the crazy one. I'm just <laughs> crazy. No, no, no. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons for me that I have Plenty of nights where I'm wrestling with a decision and if (laughs) total aggression. You know, everyone's strength and weakness is the same thing. It's just two different sides of the same coin. So I think one of my strengths is that I'm passionate. Like I put Mm -hmm. all of me (laughs) into it. My weakness is, is that I'm passionate and I care a lot about it. So I do spend time wanting to make great decisions, but most of the time is not angsty It's, I believe, until I know what decision to make, I'm just going to keep walking, right? I don't choose something I know is a bad decision Mm -hmm. just because I want the relief of having decided, right? Because that's usually what happens. You you don't know, it's uncomfortable, you don't. And that is true whether you're making a reorg decision or whether you're making a decision for life. We hate uncertainty, we hate mess. And my experience is, If you can tolerate the mess too, you know, you're going to be okay. So my sleepless nights are usually not about that I have a decision to make. It's about keeping walking until I know the right decision. To me, the hardest ones are when, you know, sometimes people say, well, you can't make a wrong decision, right? This one is one where you can't make a wrong. There's no wrong outcome. You know what the truth is? When there's no wrong outcome, there's no right outcome either, and those are really hard. So for me, one of the hard ones was um, when I was leaving the job and it became clear that the president didn't want me to continue as acting director and wasn't going to choose me for director of national intelligence. And there are a lot of career, emotional, how can you not want me kind of things. But I think the hardest thing for me was balancing, the Congress had a statute and their Congress, so that's what they do, that said the principal deputy is going to become the acting DNI in the absence. So they wanted me to hold the line so that their statute wasn't abrogated. Mm-hmm. The president wasn't going to choose me. Had I stayed too long, what if I had forced him to keep me? Somehow we stand by the statute, the statute holds, and the president would have a DNI he didn't want. How is that going to work for the community? So to me, Those are the ones that are really the most difficult. When you have two considerations, each are valid and they're not mutually solvable, then you have to choose one and you know you're letting go of the other one. And I think those are the hard ones that typically keep me up at night. And any decision that involves another human, (laughs) any decision, you know, whether it is I have two great candidates for a job, which one am I going to choose because it is a really great job and I'm going to disappoint the other. Or holy smokes, we had one of those things happen where someone needs to be held accountable. It was a really good person, but they're still going to be held accountable. Every decision that involves a human is the hardest I make.
0: So it's really interesting hearing you talk about decisions, not only in your professional life, but your personal life um, as well. And because intelligence itself is a decision-making business, uh, how do you think your career in intelligence has informed your approach to decisions in your own life? And how is your approach similar or different for each? uh, we're going to have to fix.
1: That is such a great question. We're going to have to figure out, you know, figure out how we're going to fill the air in this while, while Sue thinks that the answer oh, wow. to a great question. No, no, it's a great question. I think I was a decent decision maker before being an intel officer, or maybe because I became an intel officer. Here's how they're similar in making this up. Let's see if it works. <laughs> um, intelligence, you have to deal with what is. That's, that's At the foundation of intelligence, it is dealing with what is, not what you prefer to be so. Mm -hmm. Well, think about it in a decision-making context. That is a really great foundation for for decisions. The second thing about intelligence is it's inductive, right? You're not proving something. You are looking at what is, and you are inferring a rule that would apply to what you see, right? So again, that's kind of cool from a decision-making perspective is, you know where you are, you have to figure out the higher level action you need to take to come up with a solution to what is, right? So that's Mm -hmm. a good parallel to intelligence. And then the last thing about intelligence is you have to have enough structure in your analysis to be able to convince somebody that they can deal certainly with what is fundamentally uncertain information and live with the idea that the intelligence assessment will be wrong just as if you can't live with the idea that your decision might be wrong, you will never make one. Mm -hmm. So, it, there, I love this question and ask me it next time we talk and I will have a much better answer, but I think it's a really thoughtful comparison between two crafts and did it, did the universe conspire to take someone who was a confident decision maker and throw her into the craft of analysis. So I, t- or intelligent. So I turned out to be okay at that, <laughs> or I was going to be good at analysis because I was a zoologist and That process of learning to be an intelligence officer taught me how to be a good decision maker. I can't tell you which one, but it was a pretty decent marriage.
0: Well, I thought that was a great answer to the question. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. So we like to end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you could give yourself a code name. What would it be, and why?
1: <laughs> so, have, this is like someone who asks you your favorite movie, and you want to give them three.
0: <laughs> you can give us three; that'll be interesting too.
1: So, um, uh, I, okay. So, I am going to give you three, but I'll give you one. Right? Okay. So, one is happy perfectionist, which you know, I once had someone said I was always satisfied. I was always happy and never satisfied, and um, I think that's probably true and probably really hard to live with. Right. For me that's not a that's that's where I live, but if you're someone who's just delivered me work right and I'm like, "Oh, and we can do this you're like hey could we could we could we stay here and just admire what we've just done you know i 'm trying to lay off so that could be it, but i'm not sure I want that um We could go with infinite resolve, but I think that's already taken like by a military operation, but i think I think i'm pretty dogged mm-hmm. and and i don't get tired i don't get tired of driving um But the one I'm going to give you is what I always say I am is simple Patriot. Oh my gosh. That's perfect. And it's just because I know what impels me and I don't add a lot of complexity to that quest.
0: Well, I don't know a better way to end than that. Um, So this has been so much fun. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for doing this with us. And um, I hope you had fun as well. And I can't wait for our listeners to hear this episode. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Megan. It was a blast. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. You can find out more about AWIC by reaching out to AWICpodcast at gmail.com and telling us a bit about you. You can also learn about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk talk next time